Let's change up the way you watch baseball. Introducing Change Up, brand new live whip around show across the league, brought to you by MLB and DAZN. Jump in and out of the best plays as they happen and get expert analysis from hosts who bring a fresh personality and a new perspective to the game. It's on every night and available on nearly any device, smart TVs, tablet, mobile, and gaming consoles. Getting set up with DAZN is easy. Just download the DAZN app in the Apple or Android app store, sign up by creating an account, and start watching across any of your devices. That's DAZN, D-A-Z-N. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. If you want to get up to speed on any of today's podcast topics, you can read about them on the ringer.com. Zach wrote about the Yankees in the wake of the Edwin Encarnacion trade. I wrote about what the Padres might do heading into the trade deadline. And Ben wrote about the evolution, the next form of the aging Clayton Kershaw. And we're going to talk about all these things on the pod in just a moment, starting with Zach Cram on the Yankees. Zach, I wish I was talking to you under better, better circumstances, but uh, we got to the finish line and we choked. Like the 2007 Mets. I don't think we choked that bad. No, not that bad. So we came in fourth. We had our, our state uh, trivia championships uh, over the weekend. Uh, we drove all, Zach drove all the way to Kalamazoo, and then I drove all the way essentially to Detroit. Uh, and uh, we were in second place after the first round and then missed six of our first seven questions in the second round, came in fourth out of 32 teams. The I agony of defeat. The one exception in that, run, in that uh, run of misses was we correctly answered the baseball question, and we got it really quickly this week. Yeah, I, well, we said at the time, the question was was something like Roger Connor uh, was the major league leader in what statistical category until mid-1921. And I was like, well, there's one thing I know about Roger Connor. He was the guy who held the career home, runs, home run record before Babe Ruth. So Until next year. Yeah, we, we'll get him next time. Um, one team that's going to get him right now uh, is the first place New York Yankees, about whom you wrote. Uh they were in first place before Didi Gregorius came back. They were in first place before they traded for Edwin Encarnacion. Uh, and possibly by the time you at home are listening to this podcast, they will have activated one or both of Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton, uh, which like it feels like your dad catching you smoking home runs and he makes you smoke the entire pack of home runs to make you sick to get you to stop doing it. Yeah, the Yankees have the two highest home run hitters in the American League in Edwin Encarnacion and Gary Sanchez. So they have the two highest home run hitters in the American League, and neither one is Giancarlo Stanton or Aaron Judge. There's just a lot of power here. And as I explored in my piece, the Yankees have a top 10 offense this year, but it's not quite as good as it had been the last two seasons when Judge and Sanchez and friends had propelled them on this current run. They were first in the majors in home runs each of the last two years. They were second in runs. Now they're in the 5-10 to 10 range, and that's still quite good. It's an impressive accomplishment given all the time that their stars have missed, but they're not up at the level of like the Minnesota Twins. And now I think I would put this lineup up with any in baseball, uh, even the Minnesota Twins lineup. Wow. Uh, I mean, I just want to take a moment to say how absurd a statement that would have been 10 weeks ago 
like you're saying it's a big thing that the Yankees are as good as the Minnesota Twins in terms of of hitting home runs. And the of of course that's fun, but it really is sort of a, a statement on the game in 2019. I'm not going to attribute the entire Twins offensive performance to the ball, but this Yankees lineup I think regardless of what the ball is doing would look formidable because DJ LeMahieu might be the worst hitter, DD Gregorius might be the worst hitter, but you're going to have, when this entire group is back and healthy, someone like Encarnacion or Sanchez or Luke Voigt hitting 7th or 8th. And that's absurd. They would be a cleanup hitter on some teams. Uh, So I think it's becoming maybe a little uh, more single-faceted than it had been earlier in the season, because now it's just a lot of guys who hit home runs and move station to station when they're not you know, jogging around the bases. But I think that that's a good problem to have. The home run thing, and Ben has written about this a little bit, uh, It home runs seem sort of like three-pointers in that it's something that old, you know, crusty old folks, uh, the truism was, yeah, you can do it in the regular season, but can you do it in the playoffs? And it's just turned out that that's just the best way to score. Uh, in in either sport, regardless of the situation. And the Yankees, I mean, it's just wall-to-wall power now. I guess LeMahieu's, I was going to say LeMahieu's the only exception, but uh, he's already got eight home runs. That was a decent season for him. Like, he made the all-star team playing his home games in Coors Field uh, one year and hit eight home runs the entire year, and he's already got eight this season. I think that the... Rise in home runs, as those of us who pay attention to statistics know, has sort of masked the overall decline in offense. If home runs weren't being hit at a record pace, we'd be talking about the scoring swoon in baseball. So I wonder, once we get to October, sure, it might be harder to hit home runs off the top pitchers, but it's even harder than that to string three singles in a row. One of my favorite stats so far this season, Justin Verlander has allowed 28 runs this year and he has allowed 17 home runs. So basically, the only way to score off someone like Verlander is to hit a solo home run or get someone on base and hit a two-run shot. It's hard to score in other ways now, and the idea that the Yankees might be in trouble for a variety of reasons with the roster is kind of silly right now. But number one is that you can never have too many runs. I talked about this in my piece, but there's no penalty for winning eight to five instead of winning four to one. And we'll talk, I'm sure about what they'll do with their starting pitching going forward, but they basically got Encarnacion for free. All they had to give up to get him was some money and both Tampa Bay and Seattle are paying part of Encarnacion's contract. And they had to give up a prospect who wasn't even in their top 30 before the season. Now, he looks better than that in Seattle's farm system, but it's not like New York is short on right-handed arms who can throw hard in their farm system. So basically, they added a 40-home run hitter for free. Let's talk about the starting pitching right now. There's a lot of average-ish ERA plus lines. For some reason, this sort of feels disappointing, and I'm not sure why, because on aggregate, their starting pitching has been pretty good. I guess, you know, is it that just Paxton's had trouble staying healthy or you know, the the absence of uh, um, of Luis Severino, you know, or is this just like the one place they have left to improve, that, that this is the focus for them, improving their rotation? I think that's more where it is because the bullpen's been very good, the lineup's been very good, and all you have left is the rotation. I think also there's some angst if you start, maybe it's too early, but if you start lining up potential playoff matchups, like 
unless Severino comes back dominant, the Yankees probably would have the worst starter in a wildcard game against either Blake Snell or James Paxton. Uh, and then if you go beyond that to a divisional series, like the Astros would have the two best starters in a series. And I don't think there's anyone who the Yankees could possibly add between now and the rest of the season who would be as good as Justin Verlander or Garrett Cole, the exception being Severino. But I think that's where the angst arises is if you start projecting forward, yes, the bullpen's great. Yes, the lineup's great. But you have a lot of pitchers who just aren't necessarily as trustworthy come playoff time. That I think that is a problem, but I also, for as much as I joke about James Paxton being overrated, he can be that dominant guy if he's healthy at the right time. And I think, you know, there is a worry matching up against a team like Tampa Bay if you get them in a, in a short series. You know, what happens if, you know, how do you match up against uh, Snell, Glasnow, and Morton? Or how how well do you match up against um, Salem Price or, or Cole Verlander and whoever the the Astros pull out for their that third spot in the rotation, but you need like they've got. We've seen Paxton uh, put up those outrageous one game performances. We've seen Severino and Tanaka do it in big playoff moments. Um, assuming that that Severino comes back and is and is as full uh, or is at full strength, but that means that the floor is high enough for guys like Hap for. Um, you know, whoever else is, is coming up, uh, Domingo Herman, you know, when, when he comes back would, would probably would walk right back into a, a rotation spot. If you're replacing those guys, that's, that's not like the kind, if you're trying to get a better pitcher than Jay Happ, for instance, you're going to have to give up a lot. And I don't know how many of those pitchers are on the market on teams that don't need those pitchers themselves. Does that make sense? Did I just completely tie that in a knot rhetorically? No, I was going to make the same point yeah. that it would almost be easier. I We talked about Texas recently, and Texas, they had two rotation spots with ERAs above nine. It's really easy to make a meaningful upgrade on that. Whereas the Yankees, if everyone's kind of average and like Madison Bumgarner is maybe an upgrade given his playoff history, but I don't know what he would look like moving from San Francisco's ballpark to the Bronx. And it's just hard to make upgrades there, which makes me wonder... First off, what Brian Cashman will end up doing with the rotation. I think Severino honestly plays a large role in that because he'd be the best upgrade available, but he isn't really throwing it now that target date is mid-July at the best. So it's going to be pushing up against the trade deadline if he's not ready. And remember, there's no August trade this season. July 31st is the ultimate deadline for all trades. And the second thing is maybe you go the alternate route. They already have a very good bullpen, but they could use another uh, spot potentially for an ace reliever. Dylan Behancis has been shut down again, I believe, uh, which is kind of on the Severino path where he just keeps finding new ailments when he's already hurt. Uh, someone like Chad Green has pitched a lot better since uh, recuperating the minors. Tommy Canley has been better this year. But remember a couple of years ago, the Yankees had a really good bullpen and they decided to add Canley and David Robertson at the deadline. I wonder if Cashman looks at what essentially you just said. Is someone I add really going to be much of an upgrade on Hap or Domingo Herman and instead just adds like, I don't know, Kirby Yates or Ken Giles or something to help shorten games in the playoffs even further? Uh, it's a possibility. I'm not sure really what the best route is, but I'm sure he'll make at least one or two moves before the deadline. Every year, the Yankees come into this uh coming into the postseason. I feel like I've been doing this for five years in a row, like since Grantland. I've I've said somewhere the Yankees have their best pitcher going into the postseason is Masahiro Tanaka, who's good, but is not 
you know, he's not scary necessarily. And they have one or two other trustworthy starting pitchers and like seven knockout relievers. And I'm like, why not just go to like a three man rotation and have everybody just have the starter pitch three or four innings and then just go one inning down the line sequentially. And I mean, imagine that's so even in this day and age, that'd be so weird. You couldn't imagine the Yankees doing it, but I part of me wonders if that's the best path forward for them. You almost could, given the off days in the playoffs. And I think one of the most impressive team-wide pitching performances of this sort of new bullpen era was their wildcard game in 2017. Luis Severino was knocked around in the first inning. Chad Green came in, then they had Robertson, they had Canley, etc., who pitched the entire game. That wasn't bullpenning by... Uh, you know, that was bullpenning by necessity, not bullpenning by plan like Oakland tried in the wild card game last year. But the Yankees have the pitchers to do that. Chad Green has been used as an opener five times already this season, and the Yankees are 5-0 and in those games. Of course, that's way too small a sample to derive uh, any like true meaning going forward from that. But the five bulk guys who have followed him, it's been a mix of David Hale and Chance Adams and Nestor Cortez Jr., what if you replace Nestor Cortez Jr. in the playoffs with someone like Domingo Herman, who could go three or four innings going all out? I think this is an option they would potentially explore, especially if Tampa or Boston catches them and they end up in the wild card game. It's kind of an interesting situation overall because a team like Houston at this point basically only has to focus on their playoff roster. The Yankees have two teams that are trying to catch them now, so they need to think about the next three months before they can shift full focus to October. Do you think, I don't uh, I guess Boston's close enough to be scary by now. Obviously, the Rays are only, what, a game and a half back right now, so that's that might as well be a tie with this this much runway uh, for the rest of the season. Um, yeah, I guess falling back into the, the wild card is a genuine concern at this point. I mean, the, Yan- the Yankees are, what, five and a half games up on Boston right now, and they still play each other like 14 more times. So I think it's certainly possible that they could be caught, especially now that Boston's rotation seems to be getting it together. I mean, Chris Sale's really strange April is a thing of the past now. Rick Porcello has been pitching really well lately, including a shutout performance against the Twins last night. So I certainly don't think Boston is out of it. And it's fun in the American League. That's the only divisional race we really have right now. I haven't given up on Cleveland possibly catching Minnesota yet, but it certainly seems like the AL East is the only a divisional race we have in the AL right now. And I could see any of these three teams winning. Yeah, that that is one thing that I'm glad that I was wrong about. I thought this was going to be total chalk in the American League, that there would be maybe one wild card spot that uh, wasn't locked up right off the, the bat. But between the AL East and a surprisingly competitive wild card race, you know, you, know, you mentioned the Rangers, the Indians are still in it. This is uh, shaping up to actually be a pretty good pennant race. And I'm I'm glad I was wrong about that. I'm just looking at the schedule now. The Yankees and Boston play each other eight times in a week and a half at the end of July. And so that's like where you could really see some overreactions for both teams. I was going to say that's uh, in July, you said? Yeah, it's... I'm trying to think if... If Fox or ESPN is going to have soccer, they're going to need to push off the air. (laughs) It's uh, four games at the end of July and then four games at the start of August. So in that intervening span, depending on what happens in the first series, you could maybe see them alter their trading plans. But I think the broader point is this is also where the rotation questions come into play. The Yankees notably 
did not budge on offering Dallas Keuchel anything more than the qualifying offer. Keuchel ended up signing in Atlanta. Maybe Keuchel isn't a huge upgrade on someone like. I was going to say I, he he makes such a bigger difference for the Braves who just like they just need a steady hand. I, I wrote that when they signed. Like they just needed a grown up in the rotation, and the Yankees' rotation is made up entirely of grown ups, and they need like a stud, which I don't think Keuchel is anymore. It's valuable as as he will be to a playoff uh, playoff bound Braves team. But the the point I'd make there is that maybe that's not a huge upgrade in the playoffs. But right now, when the Yankees are right using now you need it. Nestor yeah. Cortez every fifth day, when they have CC Sabathia every fifth day, and like Domingo Hermans on the DL or on the IL. I think that's where it matters that the next three months actually mean something to the Yankees and that they can't shift full focus to October yet. Well, the Yankees and the Red Sox down the stretch. And my Tampa Bay Rays. And your Tampa Bay Rays. I'm debating whether or not to hold you to the Tampa Bay Rays will win the East or whether I'm going to give you close enough if they like if they get the first wild card spot and finish a game out. I am, this is something, this is my big trade deadline consideration. What, if the Rays win like 97 games, but the Yankees win 98? Yep. Then you're wrong. That's, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. And I guess that's something I would have to live with. This series right now is really interesting. Uh, Masahiro Tanaka shut out the Rays last night. Uh, but I think the Rays have the pitching advantage uh, both tonight and tomorrow. So if the Rays win both of those games, they're back in the lead. And I think regardless of where they ultimately end up, and you know, I'm not, tr- I'm not trying to claim credit yet, but regardless of where they ultimately end up, I think this Tampa Bay team is certainly exerting more pressure on New York and Boston than a lot of people expected heading in. That is certainly true. You're not trying to, to claim credit, but you're definitely putting a marker down. I mean, you know, I, I have to take what I can get at this point. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, this has been illuminating as always. Uh, Zach, we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for coming on. Until then. Support for today's show comes from Sonos. Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out. Their experts in acoustics and engineering even work with Oscar and Grammy winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an immersive listening experience. Getting started is easy. Just plug your speaker in and open the app and connect all your favorite streaming services. Start with one speaker and connect more over Wi-Fi whenever you're ready. All Sonos speakers and components work together so you can customize your sound system. You can also connect your TV or turntable to listen to everything you love. Now, my Sonos came in the mail, and as for setup, I can just say this. If you open the box at halftime of a soccer game, you can listen to the entire second half with extreme clarity and pendulous thunderous bass. So if you're interested in thunderous bass, go to Sonos.com to learn more. All right, my next guest is uh, someone who spends a lot of time around one of the most interesting teams in baseball, uh, a team that we have talked about a lot on the pod, and we are happy to to have him bring his firsthand, um, firsthand knowledge of the situation. So from MLB.com, AJ Casavell, how you doing? Good. The Padres are one of the most interesting teams in baseball. That's, uh, what, what a time to be alive. Well, I was going to say, you... You've been on this beat for a few years now. Uh, my gag was for forever was the most interesting Padre of the past ten years was Ginny Baker, who's a, a fictional <laughs> player from a TV show that only lasted ten episodes. But this is certainly no longer the case. Yeah, I've had more storylines this year on the beat than I did in the in the last three combined, and and we're only we're not even through June yet. So just kind of goes to show you the difference. And and I think even just the interesting part about the Padres, the fact that they have good young players and interesting guys to follow. Like even if they end up not being that good, 
this season, I think a lot of fans here would tell you, like, we'll, we'll take this, especially because the future is so bright. Yeah, and so I wrote a column about about the team that's up on the site today that that's sort of the thesis, that even if they, that everybody had really high expectations with Machado being signed and, and Fernando Tatis and Chris Paddock and a couple other players getting into the lineup for the, for the first time, and they the Padres are fine. You know, they're about a 500 team, but you could see the promise and they still, most of all, they have options, you know, going forward, mm-hmm. um, whether they want to per- really try to pursue a wild card spot this year or uh, sort of pack it in and, and tread water until 2020. Um, you wrote a little bit about uh, some of the trade rumors uh, surrounding Kirby Yates, who is one of the players that they they might not want to move. And we'll talk about him a little bit later. But, you know, what is your sense of of how satisfied they are with the progress they've made? I think on a, on a kind of micro level, on a night in, night out basis, the fans, I mean, Fans get frustrated when you watch a team lose, just generally speaking. But for the most part, it, on, on a macro level, looking at a big picture, people here, like, it, it, it's, it's different. People here aren't annoyed anymore. They aren't kind of angry that the team hasn't spent money. They're, they're, they, they see the big picture. They understand that, you know what, if the Padres finish 82 and 80 this year, that's an important step going forward. It's important that they're playing games that, they, that are kind of meaningful this late in the season. Uh, and they have all of these guys coming back next season if they want them back. And so there's, there's pieces to build on. There's players who will get better, who have not reached their ceiling yet. Uh, the trajectory is that they're clearly at the upward part of their trajectory, and they're not even maybe uh, halfway through that. So I, I think, generally speaking, the fan base out here is, is embracing this team because they're also fun to watch, too. That's, I think that's a part of it. I was going to say that's got, I mean, and it's not just personalities like uh, Paddock and Fernando Reyes and, and Machado who are interesting and compelling individual players to watch. It's just the idea of, of being in it every night. And I think fans are generally understanding of a rebuild, but just if you're going to watch it night in and night out, I mean, this, I've, I've talked about this before on the show um, when Zachary Levine was on the Astros beat for the Houston Chronicle when they were losing 110 games a year. Like reading him, you could feel him going slowly nuts watching this bad team that had no chance of winning. Um, and that's just got to be a palpable difference from this team that didn't really, that had a lot of promise way off on the horizon, but not really direction. And now, you know, win or lose they're I mean, we just saw them play the the most or the highest scoring uh, four game series in baseball history, and then follow that up with a two nothing win uh, against Milwaukee. And that's, you know, it's, it's interesting if nothing else. Yeah, and I, I think it kind of, everything kind of turned maybe, I, I would say at the beginning of last season, it kind of changed when, when the Padres started getting ranked as the number one farm system by everyone and people started realizing. Because when they traded for Fernando Tatis and Chris Paddock, both of them were, I mean, Tatis wasn't even, he wasn't even really mentioned on most prospect lists, but neither of them were mega prospects. And then kind of as, as the fans saw them develop and, and saw kind of the rest of the industry take notice, that's when the palpable shift happened to to like, oh, this, this thing could be pretty cool coming up. And then now this season, it's been like there, there are growing pains, but I don't think any Padre fan coming into the season would have, would have said, yeah, if we're 500 in June, like I wouldn't take that. Every single, every single fan would. And the way they've gotten here has been exciting. Chris Paddock's had his, his ups and downs, and he's been really good at times. Fernando Tatis has been like not from this planet. I, I can't tell you how good he has been and the funny thing is, I had a million people tell me he was how, how good he was going to be, and how and the things he did on the bases and in the field. And so I was ready for it, and he still exceeded my expectations with with, with how he's played. It's, it's 
the Padres haven't had players like this in, in my, I, I've lived in San Diego for eight years. They have four or five guys who are more interesting and more compelling than anyone on any of those other teams. So I want to steer you a little bit away from Tatis and, and Paddock and, and Machado and talk about Kirby Yates, who has been, I mean, he's a five foot 10, 32 year old career journeyman, uh, who's literally named Kirby. And he's been probably the best relief pitcher in baseball this year. Yeah, and he works his butt off. He's, I mean, that's that's first and foremost. That's where that's why he got where he was. I think after his after his season with the Yankees in 2016, he he kind of uh, reinvented himself. And I know everyone likes to focus on the splitter, but I think there's something to be said about the mental aspect of everything. He lived in Hawaii for his whole life, and he decided to move to Arizona and like completely reshape his workout regimen. And and he did develop a splitter that off season. He went into that, that 2017 season uh, kind of feeling really good about where he was, feeling like he could become a, a pretty good relief pitcher, and he got cut by the Angels after one appearance. And so he, uh, I think that to him, he's been cut a lot of times, but that's, that's kind of the one that maybe sticks in his craw a little bit because, because of how he felt he was doing. He's been really good the last two years. It's not just this year, but this year I think he's taken another step, and I, I don't see any difference in how he's, in, in the way he's pitching or the pitches he's throwing or anything, I, I think he's just, he just knows he's good and, and he knows when to throw his splitter and he kind of knows when guys are going to swing and miss. It feels like, it feels like if Kirby Yates needs a swing and miss, he's going to get it. Uh, his splitter, I think is, is, it has to be one of the, one of the top five, 10 pitches in the game. Um, and now I, the, the trade situation with Kirby Yates, I think is, is one of the more compelling storylines around the trade deadline. Cause I mean, People at the Padres have told me they're, they're really, they really don't want to move him unless they're blown away by an offer. And uh, I think that's what it would have to take, even though only, he only has two years left on his contract, presumably only one of which would be uh, on a team fighting for playoff contention if the Padres aren't in it this year. So uh, there, there's still some time for this all to unfold, but he's, he's, he's fascinating. And, and like you said, his value will never be higher than it is now because of kind of where he is in his career. And this is, uh, this is something that I've, thought about a lot with you know with Cleveland's um situation there are floating trade rumors uh, you know there's trade rumors all around for guys like Trevor Bauer and like the thing with Yates is you trade him and you're trying to contend soon what are you going to get back even if you do get you know some amazing prospect haul what is going to allow you to compete in the short term better than this knockout closer that you've got right now and if he's happy and the Padres are happy with him it, it seems eminently reasonable that that he might resign and and they could uh you know have him around for for a couple more years beyond that yeah and he loves it here in San Diego so there's no reason to think that wouldn't happen uh I, I think the question is, I mean you go back to last season when the Padres traded Brad Hand they had Kirby Yates so they had, and, and Jose Castillo was there last year too, Matt Strom was in the bullpen. So they had kind of, trading Brad Hand, if they wanted to compete down the road, they still had the pieces for a viable bullpen. I think right now, if you trade Kirby Yates, who is by far and away your best relief pitcher, you do set your timeline back a little bit because now all of a sudden you need to go out and get a guy who can fill the role that Kirby fills. So it's not, it's not as cut and dry as saying, oh, well, I mean, relief pitchers are a dime a dozen. Kirby Yates, that type of relief pitcher is not a dime a dozen. And that, so let's take a step back and look at the entire trade picture, because I imagine there will be some move of some kind. Um, AJ Preller has so many options in terms of what he can pursue um, pitchers versus position players, but they have a tremendous depth at the corners right now with, with their corner outfielders and also the players that they have committed to the most 
Cosmer and Machado and Will Myers are best suited in the corners. So that only leaves so many uh, plate appearances for guys like Hunter Renfro, Fran Mil Reyes, uh, Josh Naylor's been up a little bit this season. Uh, they've got more prospects. I mean, they've got they've got guys in AAA who would be getting starts if on a normal Padres team. Um, and so they have pieces and weaknesses elsewhere on the diamond. Where do you see, who do you think might be moving? What do you think they might be pursuing? Well, I think they might they might knock on the league office door and say, "Hey, let's get the DH in the National League." Because I can't I can't <laughs> imagine another another team that needs DH more than more than the Padres, who have Josh Naylor and Fran Mil Reyes, both of whom are very very good young hitters, kind of without a real defensive position. Or they, I mean, they obviously play the outfield corners, but but not particularly well. And they have Hunter Renfro, so uh, it, it's interesting in that sense because the Padres have kind of started by this season by. They have the potential for a pretty good outfield defense with, with Manuel Margot in center, and you put Will Myers in left and Hunter Renfro in right. I think all three of those guys are above average where they're playing, but they've gotten by by putting Will Myers in center and playing Framil Reyes and Josh Naylor somewhat reg- regularly recently, uh, kind of saying, you know what, like outfield defense doesn't matter all that much if we're getting these bats into our lineup, and it's, it's, it's kind of worked in a way, but I don't know if big picture if that's, if that's how it's going to work. And so if you're looking at Brian Mil Reyes and Josh Naylor as the two corner outfielders, and Will Myers as your center fielder. There, there are that's that's not a good defensive outfield. That's, that's probably also probably one of the worst outfield. defensive outfields. Yeah, it's probably one of the worst defensive outfields in baseball. And so, do you do you uh, do you look to trade Renfro, who's going to fetch a lot because he's playing fantastically right now? He's, I mean, he's not only is he hitting the ball at the ballpark, but he's taking better at bats, and he's and his defense is is through the roof this season. I, I, I I've seen. The progress he's made defensively is probably as big as any Padre from last season to this season. I think he's he's put himself. I think he's had nine defensive runs saved, and he was kind of right right up there with with uh, Byron Buxton and Mookie Betts. Now he's not that good, but mm-hmm. it just kind of speaks to the strides he's made. Uh, I don't know if you if you, if you trade a piece like that when he's maybe your your only corner outfielder who can do it on both sides of the ball, but he is the guy who's probably going to fetch you the most at the trade deadline, given how many years of team control he has and what he's doing right now. So what about the pitching? I mean, this was a, this was something that we've talked about a lot. Who's going to actually pick up the ball. And it not just, this was before we knew uh, how good Paddock was, but the rest of this rotation is so incredibly young. And particularly before some of their veteran guys come back from injury, what kind of progress have guys like Eric Lauer and Matt Strom Cal Quantrill, you know, are, are these foundational rotation pieces or are they going to have to dip into that prospect uh, into that prospect bin and go and get somebody? They've made progress, but not the kind of progress that makes you say these guys are, are rotation pieces for the long haul. Like they need to show you a little bit more. Matt Strom was really good at the beginning of the season, but he hadn't, he hadn't pitched in the rotation. And now he's in his last few starts, he's hit a little bit of a wall. Eric Lauer has been up and down. I think the one guy who you could say is maybe a foundational rotation piece, even if it's just a back-end 4-5 type, is Joey Lucchese, because he's, I mean, his, his last two starts, he's, he's been really good. He was really good against the Brewers last night, but he was kind of the way he just battles and manages to get through five, six innings. He, he's the kind of guy that you can have at the back of your rotation, and, and, and that's a really good thing on a really good team. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, it, it's been interesting to watch the way A.J. Preller's kind of managed the situation, because he, I think it's telling how he approached last offseason because the Padres had the worst rotation ERA in baseball last year and he didn't do very much of anything. He kind of said, you know what, we, we want to see, we think we have enough arms in the minor leagues coming, coming 
forward in the next year, two years, three years, that there's not a there's not a lot of need to go out and spend money on a pitcher when the rotation will, will fill itself. And I don't disagree with him. I think there's a lot of really good young young talent down there, but by not adding a pitcher during the offseason, it's it's probably set the Padres back a little bit because the rotation has been it's been shaky lately. So I think it, it it's probably telling what he did during the offseason. And what it says to me is that he's not going to go out and, and trade for a guy just to trade for a guy, a back at the rotation piece. But the fact that the Padres have been linked with some, so many of these maybe big-name pitchers, that'll be probably what their focus is at the deadline because they, they, they do have the pieces if they wanted to go out and, and get a Trevor Bauer type. They have the pieces to do so. Yeah, that that seems like a reasonable way to approach this because maybe you do, you know, maybe uh, what did, yeah, uh, Matt Strom does turn into into the number two starter you need, and you're never going to find out if you don't give him playing time. And you know, that seems like a reasonable way to uh, to approach building a rotation if you've got the kind of time and resources the Padres have. Yeah, and and I think their thought process with these guys that they have right now is that. You know what? We've got we've got five guys in the rotation. All of them are twenty six years old or younger. Strom Strom's older. Uh, I guess twenty seven years old or younger. Um, but they've got five guys, and they've got three guys that they're basically shuttling back and forth between the minors and the majors, depending on whether they need an extra day of rest. Uh, if if among those eight guys you have three major league caliber starting pitchers in, that can that can anchor a rotation, that can be in a rotation. And then you add Mackenzie Gore to the mix, and then maybe you add another one of these prospects, Luis Patino, to the mix. That sets you up really well for the long run. And so, why take opportunity away from those six, seven, eight guys you have now when you're still just finding out about them? That, yeah, I mean, they're most of the way there with Lucchese and Paddock. So, um, before we go, we've gone oh, 15 minutes into this conversation without talking about the biggest free agent uh, to sign this offseason, Manny Machado, uh, in any sort of detail. He's been, you know, just the look at the numbers. He's been good. I'm curious yeah, how he's settled in as sort of one of the veteran leaders of this team and what the perception is, whether there's any sort of, you know, whether uh, the fans or, or the team, uh, insofar as you can tell, are satisfied with what they've gotten out of him so far. Yeah, I think for the most part, everyone is. and and. It, it's a little. It's different from I think the Bryce Harper situation in Philly because San Diego is so starved for a superstar for so long that Manny Machado is going to get a, he's going to get leash if he struggled a little bit out of the gate and he did offensively and he's been really good lately uh, and his defense has been outstanding the whole time and so he's like you said he's probably so far just been good he hasn't been spectacular he's made some spectacular plays but he hasn't been spectacular uh, he his presence alone I think. And, and I don't, there's not a way to quantify this. There's, it, it, there's no number to say so, but I think his presence alone maybe changed the expectations, generally speaking, in, in the clubhouse, in the front office. Uh, and I, I want to say the, the series in Colorado this weekend, Machado wasn't the star, but he worked, some, he worked a couple walks when they really needed it. He had a couple home runs. He... Uh, they, they, they rallied twice from down three runs in the ninth inning and six runs in the ninth inning. If Manny Machado's not on that team, I don't think they do it because I, I, I just think he, he, he brings an, he plays with an edge and he brings, he brings some fire that Eric Hosmer also does. And, and having those guys, even if they're not, even if they aren't, they haven't been the best players this season. I think the Padres' best players have been Fernando Tatis and Hunter Renfro and Kirby Yates too. But having those two guys kind of kind of leading the charge does do something, and and 
the expectations in the clubhouse and in the front office have changed, and kind of just around the city they've changed too. So Manny Machado, if he if he ends the season with these kinds of numbers, I, I think the people in San Diego will probably probably think, all right, you know what, like maybe he bounces back next year, but he changed kind of the culture and everything and the way everything was going. And I also don't think he's, I don't think he's done per se. I don't think he's done getting improving on those numbers. He's, he's been really good in the last week or two. So uh, it's been interesting to talk to Eric Hosmer this year to kind of get the, get them. There's not many guys in the world that can understand what it's like to sign a free agent contract into spring training and go into a new city out of that, that you've really never spent a whole lot of time in and then be expected to perform there. And he was really bad last season, and this season he's been he's been good. He's been a good hitter, and he's played solid first base, and he's been extreme. He's been useful. Uh, the mindset of that maybe is something that we don't look into enough, and and it can't have been easy on Machado. And now if he's starting to hit, uh, maybe he's getting over some of those the sea legs from being in San Diego. Yeah, and you brought up the. I mean, that's a natural comparison to Bryce Harper. The thing that. The reason that I liked Machado a lot more as a potential free agent target just across the board was all the things that you mentioned that, like, with Harper, it's the bat, and that is it. And Machado is one of the best defensive third basemen I've ever seen. And he can, if he's got a 117 OPS plus, that's a lot different from... Uh, from somebody like Bryce Harper having a 117 OPS plus so to say nothing of of the way that he changed the culture. I mean, I talked a little bit to Luis Arias and and Tatis in spring training and just the the way those guys just after having been around him for a couple weeks talked about it was was very it was illuminating. Yeah, and he's some of the perception around him he earned himself, but but some of the perception I think that like the, the hustle aspect, the hustle comment was not a good one, but there's I mean it's been so overblown and he really has brought a lot of, a lot of kind of, uh, he's brought, he's brought fire to the Padres. I think he got thrown out of Saturday's game. Uh, and immediately afterward, the entire dugout chirping at the home plate umpire. And they're, they're kind of mounting a little comeback Saturday before doing so again on Sunday. Like the, the players in San Diego genuinely like playing with Manny Machado. And, and I, I have to imagine that part of that is, uh, maybe they came up through the Padres system didn't really know where the organization was going. And all of a sudden the team signs a, a mega star in free agency kind of out of nowhere. And, and it changes the, the expectations long-term and it changes the expectations short-term, I think too. Yeah. And to say that, you know, to say that one signing change, you know, change the culture is, is sort of a, a bullshit cliche. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, that's, that's absolutely something, something that can happen. Uh, and you know, it's, it's not just one thing. There are a lot of factors. And, um, so it's, uh, it's, yeah, uh, it's very interesting to, to see not only how he's playing, but how he's affecting other people. Yeah. And, and the biggest thing for me is Machado and Tatis. I think having Machado around is helping Tatis maybe ease into what he, ease into the, the, the guy he needs to be. Machado, Machado's really kind of taken to Fernando Tatis just in just kind of hanging out and goofing oh, sure. around on the, on the field and off the field. And so the, the biggest aspect of the Padres having Manny Machado that makes them better is because Manny Machado is good. Like that, let's, let's get that, that let's make that clear. But there are outside factors that can't be quantified that his presence does for a, for a franchise that really hasn't had a whole lot to hope for, for nine or 10 seasons. Well, you have brought an unquantifiable, uh, uh, benefit from your presence to this podcast, AJ, uh, 
enjoy your work. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Is uh, the Padres? I'm sure will continue to be interesting. And that's all I can ask for. Just one interesting, and, and they've certainly been that this year. Thanks for having me on. All right, thanks for coming on. All right, as always, we're going to wrap up the show with uh, the Kirby Yates of podcasters, Ben Lindbergh. How you doing? I'm doing well. That was a good transition because I was just talking to AJ about uh, Kirby Yates. So I'm I'll getting your word at this for sort it. Of thing. I'll hear it later. <laughs> okay, um, you we're going to. Uh, wrap up a trifecta of talking about things that we have written about in the past or in the past few days, you wrote about Clayton Kershaw. And I realized that like Clayton Kershaw, like the state of statistics in baseball is one of those things that uh, you and I just sort of expound on at some length for on the podcast for 15 minutes, every couple months. And it's yeah. been a while. So you have uh, done a deep dive as they say into the nature of, of modern Clayton Kershaw. And what have you found? Yeah, I do sort of a state of the Kershaw annual article. It's important. It's very <laughs> it <is>. important. <laughs> right. He's one of the best pitchers of all time and one of the best peaks of all time. And I wanted to look into him because I think he has been a little overlooked this season. He has obviously fallen from his previous great heights, but not fallen as far as I think we feared that he might have. Because, of course, he came into the season on the heels of getting beaten up by the Red Sox in the World Series last year. His velocity was weighed down. He had the opt-out and was only able to extract one extra year out of the Dodgers, which I think was reflective of the fact that no one really would have wanted to commit to Clayton Kershaw long-term at this point in his career. And then, of course, he hurt his shoulder in spring training and was late to start the season. And on the heels of his missing, I think, a combined 163 days on the injured list for various back and biceps ailments over the previous three seasons, that seemed like it could be sort of a, an omen, maybe a death knell. There was no telling what we would get out of Clayton Kershaw this year. And as it turns out, since he came back in mid-April, he's made 11 starts and he's been a very good starting pitcher. <laughs> not the best, not even the best in his own rotation. You'll be writing about someone who has been better later this week, I believe, in that rotation. Mm -hmm. But he has been very valuable. And I think that is a relief just to see him adapt to a diminished skill set and still find a way to get guys out. It's so interesting to talk about Kershaw on the, on the decline because his... He got knocked around by the Red Sox in the in the World Series last year. Like, take a number. The Red Sox knocked everybody around last year. True. And you look at you know one forty three ERA plus uh, is was tied for his second worst season since two thousand nine. And this and you know for all the time that he's missed with injuries over the past three seasons, he's made at least twenty one starts every year, thrown at least one hundred forty nine innings uh, every year since two thousand nine. Just this would be like the 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 seasons that that I'll be writing about for Hyunjin Ryu, for instance. Like what Kershaw is doing now in a diminished state is is almost impressive as as what is a career year for a normal pitcher. So I, yeah. I do think it's I I imagine we do this every time we we have the state of the Kershaw conversation, but like it, it is important to put that flag down. To yes. say that even if he has fallen off, he has fallen from a higher level than any pitcher since at least Pedro Martinez. Yeah. So he's still an you know an incredibly valuable pitcher. 
he had a long way to go down yes. and still be really good. And really, we've seen that. <laughs> the discourse around him is really just a, a more evidence that you shouldn't ever raise expectations. That you should just <laughs> try to be mediocre on as low effort for as long as possible, and no way, and uh, you'll never disappoint anybody. Yeah, I mean, he's no Lance Lynn right now, but he's still certainly a, not a guy you want in your rotation. And I have maybe a, a morbid curiosity with how players age, and and particularly great players. Because because I was talking, interviewing Brendan McCarthy last year, and his career recently came to an end. And he said that in this era of data and technology and being able to tweak the way you go about your business as a player, he said, if you want to play 10 to 15 years, you have to think in that time, you're going to have probably two to three career reinventions. It's going to be a rare skill set that you just get to do whatever you do from the day you walk in the league till the end. And I think that's always been the case. But these days, we can really track and analyze exactly how players are compensating for losing some stuff. And I think it's admirable that Kershaw has made some adjustments given that he was recently just so dominant and so unhittable that you would have to think mentally and psychologically, it would just be a difficult adjustment to convince yourself if you're Clayton Kershaw that, okay, I can't keep doing what I was doing because he was just doing it better than anyone else has virtually ever done for a decade or so. And so you can age like Justin Verlander, but it's very rare to do that, to be throwing 95 at age 36. And even Verlander has had to make some adjustments. And you can age like Felix Hernandez and just completely fall off a cliff in a really depressing fashion. Or you can have a middle ground where you're Kershaw or you're CeCe Sabathia or someone like that, where maybe you run into a tough time, but then you realize that you can make some adjustments, you can learn from experience, and you can get the most out of the stuff that you still have. And in this article, I kind of tracked exactly what Kershaw is doing differently these days. So among other things, he is throwing his fastball less. And and yes. By relying less on it, sort of, and this makes sense if you think about it, but on the surface, it sort of seems paradoxical. Even though he's not throwing that hard, the less he throws the fastball, the more effective it becomes. Yeah, it's been a really good pitch for him this year, even though it's been sitting around 90 miles per hour. So he's lost something like four miles per hour off what it used to be. And yet it's been very effective for a few reasons. A, as you said, he's throwing it a lot less. He's basically throwing as many sliders or more sliders than he is throwing fastballs. Now he's one of the few pitchers to do that. And that's obviously a really good pitch for him. The curveball is still a good pitch for him. I mean, we talked about it. He was Clayton Kershaw. He had more weapons than any other pitcher out there had, really. And even now that he's throwing much slower and really not many starting pitchers throw slower than Clayton Kershaw does right now on their fastball, at least. And yet, imagine that that feels so weird to to hear. It does. Yeah. Not that he was ever the hardest thrower in baseball, but he could throw really hard and he could throw in the zone. And that's something he used to do. It wasn't so much that he would just avoid the middle of the zone entirely. In fact, he used to throw more pitches in the middle of the zone than the typical pitcher did. It was just that he could get away with it because his stuff was so hard to hit and he had so many options and you never knew what was coming and his command was good. 
Now he doesn't do that, though. Now he has sort of he lives on the fringes of the strike zone much more so these days. And yet he does it in a clever way where for a while now he's been really great at getting the first strike, the first pitch strike and getting ahead in the count. And that's still the case. So he kind of sneakily he will throw pitches in the strike zone on the first pitch when hitters are much less likely to swing, even at strikes. So he'll go up oh one, he'll get that first pitch. And then he will just expand and expand and expand. And he used to throw his curves and his sliders in the strike zone. Now he tends to really bury them and throw them way below the strike zone. So he's kind of staying away from people's power. He knows he can't just blow it by them anymore, but he's still ahead in the count much more often than the typical pitcher. So he sort of steals the first pitch strike. Then he just tries to get guys to chase and he still can get guys to chase because he still does have good command and his pitches still move a lot, even though they're not so fast. And so he still has stuff that most pitchers would kill for, even even in their primes. It's just not that great compared to what he used to have. And so he kind of has to skulk around and be wily and avoid the center of the strike zone much more than he used to have to. So you said the word clever a while back, and that's just, it just strikes me that, I mean, I've said this about Cole Hamels for years, so I always thought he would age well, because if you're left-handed and you can change speeds and you can locate and you know what you're doing, you can essentially pitch until you, until you get tired of doing it and just want to go home. And mm-hmm. you know the archetype for this is Tom Glad, somebody like Tom Glavin, or if not him, the Jamie Moyer. Yeah. You know, Kershaw still got way better stuff than any of those guys, even Hamels. But it's just he's bringing that sort of crafty veteran lefty, uh, you know, that intelligence, that experience to bear, which is a real look in the mirror to say about someone who's younger than I am. Which I you know I, I totally get the I totally get the morbid curiosity about aging because I feel right. it too. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> I, I think it's harder to do the the Glavin kind of career extension act these days because the strike zone, much as people still complain about it, it's a lot tighter than it used to be. And the pitches that Glavin used to get called strikes on the periphery of the zone and that's putting it charitably you can't really get those pitches anymore, not to the same extent. And so he's living on the edges of the strike zone, but he's still very dependent on getting swings and getting chases. And for now, he's still doing that. But it's harder, I think, to to do that and survive and just count on the kindness of umpires to bail you out because umpires, fallible as they remain, they are much more consistent and much more in line with the rulebook zone than they used to be. So I think it's gotten harder and obviously it gets harder just as the young guys get better and better. But thus far, he's making it work. I think he still has a a deceptive delivery, which even if he's throwing 90 and really has peaked at like 92 and a half or something this year, he still, it probably plays up to a certain extent. And he has a fastball that looks like it's rising and his curveball still topples off the table. And, you know, it's still pretty good stuff in a lot of ways. It's just not peak Kershaw stuff. And so now he's essentially the third starter in the Dodgers rotation because Ryu has been incredible and Walker Bueller is great. But this rotation is so far essentially the best of all time. I mean, the only starting rotation in terms of park-adjusted ERA to ever have been better than this one is this year's current Rays rotation, which is really like three starters and a bunch Mm -hmm. of openers. So no starting rotation over a full season has ever prevented runs as effectively as this Dodgers rotation. 
partly because the Dodgers defense is really good and that makes the pitchers look better too. But also it's just a a really great group of pitchers and Clayton Kershaw, even if he's kind of like the nominal ace for life, just because he's Clayton Kershaw and he's meant so much to this franchise position. Yeah. I mean, the Dodgers, I think it is as long as he's with this team. So, you know, he would have had the opening day start this year if he hadn't been hurt. Even if stats wise, he's really like their third or ish, third or fourth best starter this year. He's in a rotation that's so good that if you were to put him on other teams, he actually still would be a legitimate top of the rotation guy. So just out of curiosity, I looked up uh, Tom Glavin. Tom Glavin actually pitched long enough to be tracked by Brooks Baseball. Yeah. Uh, in 2007, he threw 200 roughly league average innings, had a winning record for the Mets, uh, and his four-seam fastball velocity, average velocity, was 85.09 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. And I, so, like, definitely— can lose another four or five. <laughs> well, that's—I mean, I don't know if, if I'd go that far, but, like, the Tom Glavitt of, of 2019 now has to throw 90 with the best curveball of his generation. Like, right. that's the, the crafty lefty now. Yeah, exactly. And and Kershaw's still lost a lot. I mean, he's got like a 3.1-ish ERA. His FIP is a little worse than that. So this was a guy who was routinely putting up sub-2 ERAs and peripherals to match. So he's lost a lot. And if another pitcher had lost an equivalent amount but had been starting from being you know a 4-ERA pitcher or something, he might be out of the league by now. It's just that Kershaw is coming down from the pinnacle of his profession. So even though he is much reduced, he is still well worth having. And the way that he's adjusted, I think, makes me encouraged that he could keep this going for quite some time and that his 30s could be productive. You know, at this point, he's kind of tacking on to the Hall of Fame resume, really. I guess, you know, all he has to do is is be good in the playoffs and get the, the World Series championship to sort of solidify even, his I mean, legacy. He's, he's had this... He's had this since he got over 10 years service time. I'm right. Yes. So, I mean, that part of his legacy, the regular season part Which was not that long ago, sealed. it turns out. It was only like no. only last year. Yeah. Wow. No. <laughs> he, he made the most of that time. But yeah, I mean, at this point, he's just kind of compiling, I guess. But it's nice that Clayton Kershaw, I think there's an outlook that he can remain a productive part of baseball for years to come. And that even if... Kids who are just seeing him for the first time today may not quite understand what the fuss was about Pete Kershaw. I think it's good that he will be a regular presence in rotations. It all comes down to durability, of course, and he's had the recurring back problems, and maybe that's a chronic condition, and maybe that continues to sideline him periodically. But when he has been healthy, he has continued to pitch really well. And it's been five years now, I think, since his last Cy Young win, but his ERA in that time is just microscopically low because when he has been on the field, he's been very effective. You said kids who haven't seen him and don't know what the fuss about P. Kershaw is. This is something that's that's fascinated me for. I mean, since the kid or since the players I watch as a kid started to age out of out of the game, I'm I wonder how. Even though we have all the stats, we have more info, more video. Like every major league, every major league game pretty much is on YouTube somewhere or somewhere on the internet. You can go find it. Um, And you know, you look at at highlights of. Like highlights sort of ruined Brooks Robinson for me because, <laughs> you know, that famous highlight reel from the 1970 World Series and no disrespect to Brooks Robinson, who's you know, a Hall of Famer, greatest third defensive third baseman uh, of his era. Like I w- watched that as a kid in the 90s and think I see Scott Rowland make that play 
five feet farther right in, into foul territory every week mm-hmm. and you know the same thing about machado or nolan arenado or matt chapman and you know old it's there are very few old players whose highlights really look as impressive after after time like uh you know you look at steve carlton's slider and now and it's like that's right. good you know mm-hmm. he is, he was that you know an athlete as an athlete ahead of his time but i don't know if this is anything more impressive than what Noah Syndergaard throws, for instance. Yeah, and I I'm think curious that's how true. you think Kershaw is going to age. Right. Yeah, and I guess this is a, a nerdy way to appreciate a player, but I am grateful that Kershaw came up at the perfect time that we have complete coverage of his career yeah. with pitch tracking technology. He's really like the first all-time great, I think, who we will forever have. You know, it's preserved for posterity because he came up in 2008 and that was the first full season of Pitch FX when it was installed in every park. So virtually every pitch Clayton Kershaw has ever thrown is recorded. And when future generations look back and want to compare Clayton Kershaw to the pitchers of that day, they could do that. And maybe pitchers then will be so great that it won't look that impressive. But, you know, we always compare Kershaw to Sandy Koufax. And with Koufax, you kind of just have to rely on maybe some clips that may or may not look that impressive or testimonials from people who saw him or guys who hit against him. And with Koufax, it's not that it doesn't look impressive. It just looks different. Like yeah. the the batters he's facing are so different that like obviously like the break on the curveball is incredible, but yeah, how do how would a modern you know I don't know how to judge that after watching, mo- you know, modern pitchers against modern hitters for so long. Yeah, and I think it's nice that from now on we will be able to compare somewhat consistently. I mean, pitch FX is not the same as Statcast, but it's the same sort of measures, and we can compare Pete Kershaw to any future pitcher and really see how he stacks up. And I'm sure that he'll stack up pretty well. So I think that's nice. And and yeah, I mean, there have been so many great players that we grew up watching, or you know, when we were younger, we saw them in their primes, and then we see them sort of decline and hang around. It's like the Albert Pujols kind of conversation where he's there and he's there and he's there and he's hanging around for so long that by the time he actually retires, his peak will have been like a a decade ago, if not Mm -hmm. more. And we all remember this latter day Pujols, who's just kind of, you know, moving up leaderboards very slowly and not looking all that impressive. And indeed moving around the bases very slowly. (laughs) Yeah, doing everything pretty slowly. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that Albert Pujols is still a part of baseball, but also sort of sad in a way that everyone who grew up seeing Angels Pujols will not really understand what Cardinals Pujols was except from looking at the stat line. So I think it's good that there's another way we can appreciate a player and preserve him for posterity. And and Kershaw is kind of the first generation of that type that we can look and see this is what he was. And this is how he compares to the players of today. So I'm glad that we can do that. I'm also glad that he is still really good. And my worst fears for how quickly he might just fall off the table here have kind of been corrected by his somewhat graceful aging this season. It occurs to me it's going to be impossible to bullshit our grandkids. Yeah, that's true. We can't say so and so through. We can't say that our <laughs> yeah. that, that modern ball players suck because there's going to be so much empirical evidence to that is true to support the ball players of 2050. Yeah, if we if we're so lucky to still have baseball, then. but that's probably a good thing, right? Yeah, it's, you know, it's good not to do the a little generational humidi- humility is, is right. healthy. Not to be able to pretend that this was the golden age of baseball when all the players were real men, and nowadays they don't know how to play, and all that kind of thing that you've been 
been hearing from former players and from fans for all of baseball's history, I think now that will be a much harder case to make because players are constantly getting better. The more we age, maybe the more we'll we'll get cranky about young ball players. But that's yeah. maybe we'll we'll age enough by next week that we'll <laughs> be talking about this then. Um, I am not getting better at ending these segments, I realize. But <laughs> all right, get out of here. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> all right, see you then. That'll just about do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks, as always, to Zach and Ben for joining me. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to my special guest, AJ Casabell of MLB.com. You can find his work on MLB.com and his takes on Twitter at AJ Casabell. Thanks to Masahiro Tanaka, Kirby Yates, and Clayton Kershaw for giving us stuff to talk about today. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time.